Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 233rd episode, our guest is Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman is a progressive, nationally and internationally syndicated talk show host. Talkers Magazine named him America's number one most important progressive host and the host of one of the top ten talk radio shows in the country every year for more than a decade. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman is also a New York Times best-selling author of more than 30 books, translated into multiple languages. He was born in Michigan and retains strong ties to the Midwest, although he has lived in many regions. He now lives on the Columbia River in Portland, Oregon. And now on to the show. Hello. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you, Rob? Good, good. I have uh, four children, so I was just in the process of getting them all to bed. So I apologize for the uh, <laughs> delayed start here. <laughs> so. Best excuse there is. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for taking the time this evening. I really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. Um, for people that don't know who you are, would you mind going ahead and just introducing yourself to start with? Yeah, I, I do a talk show uh, Monday through Friday and I write books and, and I also uh, write a daily column over at HartmanReport.com. Great. Yeah. And uh, I've been reading your book here, uh, The Hidden History of American Democracy. Um, could you talk just a little bit about what inspired this book and, and why you decided to write this, especially now? Yeah, I, I think there there are a lot of myths about uh, democracy itself, about how America uh, became this you know grand experiment, uh, you know after uh, arguably three thousand years since since the Greek experiment, Greek the failure of the Greek experiment with democracy, um, you know thanks in no small part to Aristotle, and. Uh, you know what it means and where it came from and and uh you know why democracy and and uh you know what the founders uh what their understanding of how our system of government was supposed to be and uh so you know i wanted to get into that you know uh, and and thus wrote the book i really think it's a very interesting subject to tackle especially now because i feel like the extreme right really takes ownership of that founding father period and they don't really like see any nuance in that whole equation and, and obviously in your book you you delve pretty deeply into why that's not so um, there's so many examples we could start with uh, you know I'm thinking of the Jefferson Bible for one thing and uh, you know the uh, well I mean maybe we could start with the uh, influence of Native Americans on all uh, of this and the thinking behind the system of government they wanted to set up in the first place. Yeah, what most of us learned, uh, you know, who, who uh, took history or civics classes that in, involved or included the founding of this country was that uh, the founders uh, and the framers of the Constitution, probably more significantly, were inspired by the Greek democracy in the Roman Republic. Um, or, or at the very least, that, that they derived their inspiration from the writers of the Enlightenment, you know, Thomas Hobbes in the 1600s, uh, John Locke in the, in the early 1700s, um, or maybe 1670s, as I recall, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Dennis Diderot, um, you know, the, these, these folks who's, uh, you know, Montesquieu, these, these names that are, are familiar, you know, from, from high school for many people. But it turns out that um, there was this fashion, this fad in France in the in the 
1600s and through the through the mid 1700s, well, actually all throughout the 18th century, um, there was mostly wealthy uh, women uh, who would uh, conduct what they called salons. They would invite people into their homes. Uh, they would invite a famous speaker, and then you know a bunch of the local uh, intelligentsia and politicians and whatnot. And and the speaker would speak, and then you know they sometimes the conversations about that would last for for days in some cases and um uh there were the the french had uh, very successfully uh, penetrated the uh the region of the midwest uh, basically from like michigan over to new york state and down into the ohio area and up up to the canadian border um mostly you know they were looking for fur and they were they mostly french trappers but uh, along with them came a bunch of Jesuits, a bunch of you know French priests who were committed to um, evangelizing the Native Americans, and and the Native Americans were uh, this is mostly the Huron tribe. We're, we're you know they, it's okay with us, you know they they were fine with it, um, and uh, so as a result, from the late 1600s through the mid 1700s, for about a 60 year period. There were these uh, kind of annual letters, and and they, you know they were published heavily in France and and in multiple other languages uh, from these French uh, evangelists, these priests, telling about the nature and quality and uh, of the governance and of the lives of these native people, and 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 more often than not, with great admiration, um, you know that there are no rich, there are no poor, there are no jails, there are no police. And yet they 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 live in peace. Uh, the leaders are are the ones with the least power. Uh, they they are there to serve. Um, uh, in in the Iroquois Confederacy and and uh, four out of the five uh, original nations, uh, only the women had a vote, essentially, um, for the Sachems for the for the leadership roles. Um, although those were filled by men, and uh, that. That then led to a number of uh, these Native Americans becoming quite fluent in French and traveling over to, to Paris and participating in these salons. And, uh, you know, Voltaire, um, uh, Locke, uh, we don't have a specific example of Hobbes, but certainly uh, uh, Diderot, certainly uh, Rousseau all attended these things or knew of these people and read this read, read these works extensively and were very very impressed by them and the basic message of the native americans was you know we've been doing this for ten thousand years in the north american continent or longer and we've kind of through trial and error figured it out and and uh you know if you let people accumulate too much stuff if you allow greed and if you let people uh, take positions of power and then just arbitrarily, capriciously exercise that power, you're going to have really unhappy people. You're going to have a miserable life. You're going to have a terrible community. And instead, you know, if you allow most decision making, certainly consequential decision making to be made uh, by consensus or by at least majority rule. And if you your leadership roles are actually subordinate roles, they're, they're servant roles. And and uh, uh, and and if you have a society where everybody's in, uh, everybody's there to support everybody else, and if you openly ostracize people who accumulate, who try to accumulate wealth, 
then you can have a very good society. And and they wrote and, and spoke some just absolutely brilliant critiques of the French king system, the French uh, the, the political system, um, uh, including after the French Revolution. Although mo- almost all of this was pre-French Revolution. And uh, those were the people, these were these Native Americans were the people who were informing these great Enlightenment philosophers who then were supposedly the source of information for, you know, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and John Adams and Ben Franklin and, you know, George Mason, the names we recognize. In fact, all of the, uh, virtually all of those Americans knew these Native Americans well. Uh, John Adams uh, had very, very, very close friends who were Native Americans uh, that stayed at his home. Um, Thomas Jefferson, his father was a map maker in Virginia, and he traveled all over the state uh, in the um, in the uh, early 1700s and, and brought his son with him. Uh, Jefferson's father, Peter, died when he was 15, I believe, and uh, when when Thomas was 15. And uh, spoke multiple Native American languages. And again, there were a number of them. Uh, Anaset, probably the most well-known, who uh, Jefferson actually uh, got to know quite well. And Jefferson, at the age of 17, was at the ceremony where Anaset was preparing to get on a ship and go to England to negotiate with King George II over treaty violations that the American settlers were, were doing. So... You know, the, the, the kind of bottom line here, uh, Rob, is that uh, it turns out the, the uh, uh, we didn't get our ideas from, from Greece. I mean, Greece was a pure democracy, um, uh, more or less. And it, was, and it was run kind of by jury duty, basically. If you didn't uh, show up, you know, it took 6,001 people to, to, to create a, a body and, and uh, you were drawn by lot. If you didn't show up, you were called an idiota, which is where the word idiot comes from. Um, so, and we didn't get it from the Roman Republic. They had sort of a quasi-democracy for the first little bit, but it very rapidly turned into just another kingdom, another empire. It really came from the Native Americans. And then, you know, later on, we learned that African tribes were operating the same way. Uh, Aboriginal people in Australia were operating the same way. South American tribes some great research just in the last two weeks it was published in nature in mesoamerica where they found um they've just in the last year this is not in my book but you know they found that the mesoamerican communities the central american communities that um clearly did not have hierarchical power or wealth that were run as kind of little communist societies essentially or really little democracies um were far more resilient when it came to war, disease, and drought, and, uh, uh, you know, worked out very well, whereas the little kingdom ones, the, 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 from the Aztecs and the Mayans down to the smaller communities that were imitating them, were very fragile, um, because, you know, the decision-making was by one individual or a small group of people. They, they were run as, as uh, kingdoms or kleptocracies or oligarchies, and, and uh, they were not as resilient. They did not last as long, and they did not uh, function as well. So I'm, I, I think I've gone on longer than I should have on that. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I love it. Um, but uh, I, I just, I feel like it's like to go back to this point, it's just, I, I live in uh, Hamilton County, Indiana, which just made news recently for the Moms for Liberty group here using a Hitler quote on their newsletter in case you caught that. 
I did. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I'm at. Um, <laughs> and so I just I see them being like you know t- taking on the mantle of you know this is this is a Christian nation and you know all this and that and the third. It's just it's so frustrating because the founders, for the most part, absolutely did not want this to be a Christian nation. I mean, Patrick Henry exception to the rule, of course, but um, just talk a little bit about how much disdain uh, John Adams, your, uh, you know, just go down the line. You don't even have to, like, look that far. George Washington, you know, none of these people are championing the idea of a theocracy, but they seem to, like, want to perpetuate that. They don't seem to. They are. They are perpetuating that. Yeah, they're they're trying to trying to create one, and certainly the Supreme Court is uh, really really yeah. working hard at that. Um, but yeah, the the uh, now the, to say anything about the founders generally is like saying something about today's politics. I mean, you know, even uh, even in the Federalist and anti-Federalist circles, which later kind of more or less became the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists, um, there were differences of opinion. But one of the few things that there was broad uh, agreement on, with the exception of Patrick Henry, as you mentioned, he, the, the fellow said, give me liberty or give me death, ironically, was the largest holder of enslaved human beings in the state of Virginia and uh, a brutal slaveholder uh, and, uh, and, and an evangelical Christian. And he used his Christianity to justify his slaveholding. Um, but he was, he, was, uh, he was so ostracized for that, that he ultimately did not sign the Constitution. He spoke against the Constitution at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, talked, talked James Madison into modifying the Second Amendment to protect the slave patrol, but that was as far as he, as he was willing to go. Um, Jefferson and Washington were both deists. They believed that something, some creator created the universe and set everything in motion according to mechanical, natural laws. When Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he said, you know, nature's God, uh, demands, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, essentially. These are the rules of nature and nature's God. And John Adams, who was a Christian, scratched that out and said, Christian God, and because he did the first edit of the Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson scratched out Adams's scratch out and took it back to nature's God, which is where it still is to this day. Because he and, and uh, Franklin, who was also a deist, um, believed that uh, nature and God were pretty much the same thing. Uh, they looked around themselves and were filled with awe and thought, that's it. That's that, you know, we don't need books. We don't need priests. We don't need preachers. Um, and even John Adams, who was a Christian, and, and James Madison, who was a Christian, uh, agreed uh, that government and church should remain very, very separate. Adams, who was Jefferson's protege, had this running debate with uh, Jefferson over the course of decades in which uh, Adams, excuse me, in which Madison, the father of the Constitution, uh, he's about 20 years younger than Jefferson, as I recall. Um, he, and, and, you know, he was the president who followed Jefferson. Jefferson was president from 1801 to 1809, and then Madison came in in 1810 or 1809. Um, Madison was convinced that if the government ever started giving money to the churches, it would corrupt the church it would corrupt the pastors they would they would turn into political creatures and it would destroy the religion that he loved uh, you know uh, madison went to church every sunday uh, john adams went to church every sunday and took notes um and, and sometimes he'd go to two or three church services on a single day 
Uh, he was really into his Christianity. And John Adams, you'll read some of the correspondence between Adams and Jefferson in my book. Adams also felt that if the government ever started, uh, you know, supporting religion in any way, that the, the risk, the great risk was that religion would no longer be pure, would no longer be independent, that Christianity would become, uh, you know, just another political uh, uh, force. Jefferson, on the other hand, was convinced, he didn't really think, you know, that that was that big a deal, but um, he was convinced that if uh, a religious uh, figure, if a priest or a preacher, they could, he referred to them as priests, you know, kind of a generic reference back then. It wasn't specifically about Catholics. Um, but nonetheless, he, he, he felt that if a priest ever became um, a president or a senator or even a member of the House of Representatives, that it, it would cause great corruption to the American democracy. And uh, in other words, if, if religion ever inserted itself into government. So that was Jefferson's concern. Madison's concern was government inserting itself into religion. It turns out they were both right. <laughs> you know, they were both right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and George Washington, I mean, you know, the first, one of the first treaties that America signed uh, outside of the treaties with the Native Americans was with uh, a group of Muslims uh, on, on the Barbary Coast, the Barbary Pirates. And uh, it's, it's referred to as the Treaty of Tripoli. Uh, George Washington negotiated it and, and wrote it. Actually, Alexander Hamilton probably wrote it because he did most of Jeff, uh, Washington's writing for him. He was his secretary, or he was his, uh, let's see, Je Jefferson was secretary of state. What was? Oh, he was secretary of the treasury. But in any case, he was also kind of Washington's number two guy. And in that treaty, it says, as America is not in any way created on the foundation of Christian theology, uh, you know, and then goes on to say we should have we have no no fight with the Muslims with you guys. Um, uh, John Adams uh, signed that treaty. It, it, it was negotiated during the Washington presidency, but it wasn't finalized until the Adams presidency. So you know there was absolute unanimity, at least among those who became president, about about this, uh, at least right up through the 1830s. So you know the the people who are pushing religion now in our in our uh, schools and in government are are ahistoric they are they are uh, essentially spitting on the graves of the founders of this country mm -hmm. you've thought about the founders a lot obviously and you know i just want to know what you make of this originalist idea that the supreme court seems to be going with uh here lately with their supermajority you know because at a certain point i don't know does it matter what these like founding fathers thought, I mean, you know, it's been so long and they couldn't have possibly predicted everything, you know, that's been happening now. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. You're, you're really giving a lot of good perspective on the founders, but um, sometimes I'm just like, man, like, I don't care, like, what they, what they thought about the guns. They couldn't have possibly, you know, for example, like, they couldn't have possibly conceived of what a gun could look like today. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it wasn't even... They didn't even have bullets back then. They right. Had <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So I don't know, like, like, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but it's like, are you playing into their game by, by, you know, justifying it and then buying into the idea that we have to like, look at what the founders were doing. Like at a certain point, I don't really care what they were doing. Is it right? Is it wrong? That's what I'm more concerned about, you know? Yeah. I'm not suggesting that we should. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, you'll, you'll find in the book, you know, a, a rather lengthy quote from Thomas Jefferson, where he said that every generation should reinvent America. He said uh, to, to do anything less, to consider the Constitution to be some rigid thing 
would be the equivalent of requiring a man to wear the clothes that he wore as a child for the rest of his life. And uh, so, no, I'm not suggesting that, you know, we should be guided by the founders' perspectives. What I'm trying to do is push back on those people who are making that claim and point out that uh, even if, you know, that should be what we do, that they're, they're full of crap, basically. They're lying to us, and they know it. Many of them know it. Um, uh, so, yeah, they, with regard to originalism in general, this is the scam that, you know, Scalia came up with 20 years ago on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And and it's complete BS to, to think that any, um, uh, any judge on the Supreme Court can read the minds of the founding generation when there was such diversity of opinion among them on most issues um, is absurd. And, uh, you know, so the, this whole originalism thing and Neil Gorsuch's textualism uh, is, is nothing more than a fig leaf to, to cover up the fact that, that these uh, Republicans on the Supreme Court, the Democrats have never bought into the originalist scam, um, that the Republicans on the Supreme Court are basically political actors. They're, they're rewriting laws, which, by the way, is a power that is not given to the Supreme Court in the Constitution. And striking down laws, another power that is not given to the Supreme Court in the Constitution, um, in ways that uh, you know would infuriate the founders. In fact, in 1803, in the Marbury versus Madison decision, when the Supreme Court first took upon itself the power to strike down a law, it struck down a, a, a provision in the Judiciary Act of 1797. Um, uh, in this dispute between uh, James Madison, Secretary of State James Madison, and and a, and a fellow who was supposed to get an, a, an officer's commission, uh, Mar Mr. Marbury. Um, in that case, when the Supreme Court, when John Marshall, who was the Supreme Court Chief Justice, who had been put on the court by John Adams, at that point, Adams and in 1801, uh, Adams and Jefferson were bitter enemies, because two years earlier, when Jefferson was vice president, Adams was president, Adams had uh, passed the Alien Sedition Acts and put 18 newspaper editors and publishers in prison and shut down 20, 25 newspapers, and uh, including uh, the Aurora, which was run by Ben Frank's, Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach. And um, Jefferson walked out of the White House that day uh, when that law was signed and never went back. For the next two years, he was vice president and didn't once speak to or see, in fact, didn't, didn't physically see John Adams for the rest of his life. They reconciled as old men in a series of letters, but that was about it. So um, bottom line, you know, when even the, uh, when, when, um, well, just, just to, to tie up one story about the, the religion thing to go back to that just real quickly. Um, John at excuse me James Madison when he became president the first veto he issued was uh, to there was Patrick Henry's faction was becoming ascendant by 1809 in Congress and they had uh, George Washington had created funding for a poorhouse in Washington D.C. and uh, they wanted to run the money through the church through a church, a local church, and that was uh, Madison's veto. But anyhow, when, when the Supreme Court took this power onto themselves in the Marbury decision, Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States in 1803, and he went absolutely nuts. He said, if this decision stands, then the Constitution has become a thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, 
not only are they acting like kings, but they are the unelected body of government. They should be the last to say what the law is. These are laws that are created by Congress and signed by the president who are elected by the people. The court has no business doing this. He was furious about it, as was much of the nation. There was so much blowback against uh, John Marshall. Um, and I, I went off on a digression about John Adams when I mentioned John Marshall, because Adams appointed John Marshall just a week before Thomas Jefferson became president. It was a, a lame duck appointment. Um, Marshall was Jefferson's second cousin, and they hated each other. He was a high federalist. He was a, what today you would call a, a MAGA conservative. Um, so anyhow, the, the, the court didn't do that again uh, in any consequential way. I mean, they, they tried it a couple of times, you know, during uh, during the Andrew Jackson presidency in the 1830s. Uh, the Supreme Court said that the Second National Bank of America was constitutional and President Jackson should leave it alone. And he sh he killed it. He shot it down anyway. And uh, then in the Trail of Tears, they said it was unconstitutional for him to uproot the Cherokee and move them to Oklahoma. That was a, a case that extended beyond Jackson's presidency. But uh, Jackson said, you know, uh, 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 Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision. Let him enforce it. In other words, screw you. <laughs> Supreme Court, and he completely ignored them. Um, but anyhow, the next the next big case, the next time the Supreme Court did this was in 1856 in Dred Scott versus uh, uh, Sanford, and um, and Abraham Lincoln basically said, you know, that's terrible for poor Mister Scott. He's got to go back to being a slave in Missouri, but I'm not going to enforce this on anybody else in America. Um, so you know, here you had the Supreme Court routinely being ignored or defied by American presidents, including Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, Jackson's not quite as noble a figure. Um, and, and, and called out by Thomas Jefferson for, for doing this, for, for, for saying that they know the proper meaning of the Constitution and they're going to modify our laws to, to comport with that. And, you know, they don't. And, uh, but that's basically all they do now. I mean, the, 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 this court you know, a hundred years ago, the court might have two or three decisions a year based on the Constitution, and every every other decision was, you know, they were the final court of appeals. Uh, decisions would go back and forth and back and forth through appeals courts, but so, you know, the buck had to end somewhere, and that was the Supreme Court. Nowadays, all they're doing is just rewriting our laws in ways that are completely inconsistent with the Constitution, and um, and, and 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 frankly, pissing off a lot of Americans. <laughs> Yeah, and I just always think it's 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 like with the originalist thought, basically they're saying that history kind of ended with the founders, and we should just look to them. But what about stare decisis? What about settled law? What about the last fifty years of Roe v. Wade? Okay, you can say what you want, but that's a precedent, you know. Like people have that's longer than I've been alive, you know. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, where's I that? It's it's like I said, it's BS. And not particularly well-crafted BS. No, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pure power play for sure. Yep. Um, wow. But um, what lessons do you think we can take from this this period going going forward here? It just it seems uh, it just seems like we're going backwards now because you know with the, going back to the Supreme Court, you know, it, I think liberals especially got used to the Supreme Court granting rights and now we're seeing them systematically being stripped away by that same body that they were complacent on you know so many times but conservatives were not complacent they it was a 50-year project to get this done 
And now it's for the rest of my natural life, it's probably going to be all wonky unless the Democrats step up and do what needs to be done for reform, you know? Yeah, and hopefully they will. Um, but it's going to take a hell of a majority, and that's going to depend on us in the 2024 election. Um, what, what was your question? I don't think I had a question. It was just a burst of anger. I'm sorry. Well, then, then let me just, let me just riffle, you know, to that point. You know, the reason why I think it's important that we understand what the founders did is because they created a democracy in, in a Western society that for 7,000 years had been kingdoms, you know, warlord kings and nobles and, and rich people and, and uh, kleptocracies and whatnot. And the reason why that's important is because it turns out that's democracy is the default mode for pretty much all animal life on earth. Uh, I tell the story in the book about these two scientists at the University of Essex, Kent Conrad and uh, uh, I forget his initials, but uh, Dr. Roper, I interviewed Conrad. And they uh, put forward this hypothesis that all decision-making in animals and animal communities would most likely turn out to be small D democratic rather than, uh, you know, uh, dictatorial. Uh, you know, we have these stories about alpha animals, you know, and, and you see the, you know, like the, the, the elk, you know, smashing their horns against each other and bears fighting with each other and all that kind of stuff. And you think, okay, there's got to be an alpha animal that runs everything, you know, sort of like the, the president runs the country um, or the, you know, the, 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 the CEO runs the company. But it turns out, and, and it turns out that there are alpha animals, and there are hierarchies like that, but they're purely limited to sexual selection. The alpha animal gets first choice of sexual mate, which, you know, in a Darwinian sense makes sense. They, as the strongest, they probably have the best genes. And so that, you know, there, there's some logic there. But, um, you know, their, their argument was that any kind of decision outside of sexual selection is made democratically. So uh, James Randerson and, and some group, a group of scientists at the university and working with New Scientist magazine did a study of this uh, with a group of red deer in the forest near the university, putting cameras in the trees and whatnot and tracking the deer and trying to figure out how do they decide? You know, they're all out grazing in the field or in the forest. And at some point, they got to go to a watering hole. And there's three watering holes. And how, how do they know which one to go to? And how do they know when to go there? And who makes the decision? And what they found was that throughout the time that the, and, and these are important decisions, by the way, if they go too soon, everybody doesn't get the nutrients they need. If they go too late, the, you know, the, the older or younger animals might get dehydrated and could even die. So, uh, or get weakened or, you know, more vulnerable to predators. And so uh, what they found was that as the animals were eating, they would start aligning themselves, their bodies toward a particular watering hole. And when 50% plus one of the animals had pointed their heads at one particular watering hole, the entire herd literally within, a, within moments would form into a herd and head to that one watering hole. So when I, uh, I asked uh, Kent Conrad about this and said, you know, what happened when you published this result? And he said, oh, you know, I got a call from a, from a fish guy, the ichthyologist. And and, you know, if you've ever seen a, a, a school of fish swimming along and they're just kind of going along and then all of a sudden the whole school of fish just takes a right turn and goes like that. And how do they do that? Right. I mean, I always assumed they were telepathic, frankly. Um, but it turns out that uh, every 
fin beat, as it were, is a vote. And when more than 51% of the fish are moving three degrees to the right, suddenly the whole school of fish moves three degrees to the right. He heard from an ornithologist, a bird guy who was saying, and we've seen the same things with birds, with flocking birds. You know, they're, the, the flock flies around and it seems to have a, a, a group intelligence. And the way it is, is every single wing beat is a vote. And when 50, 51% of the, of the animals are, are, are moving in a particular direction, the entire flock moves in that direction, All everybody. Um, he heard from a, a bug guy, an, an entomologist, who said that uh, I'm seeing the same thing with gnats, balls of gnats in the air that just kind of move around in the summer. You know, it's like, how, you know, how do they know where to be and how to move? Well, they're boating with their wings, with every wing beat. Um, he heard of, from an ant guy, he heard from a gorilla guy, you know, another primatologist. Basically, every animal that you can find, there, there are a couple of exceptions of animals that are in, in, just entirely solitary. There are very few and far between. Um, but outside of that, every animal that has any social instinct at all um, governs themselves through small d democracy. And so when the founders put this thing together, this democracy thing together, uh, they were bringing humans into line with basically all other animal life on earth, which was the argument that the Native Americans were making when they went to these French salons. And so I, that's why I think it's so important, you know, and, 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 and that they were clear about this, by the way. They, that's why Thomas Jefferson had this fight with John Adams about nature's God in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that's well. That's more hopeful than I can get a lot of the time. I feel like I get kind of cynical. So that's 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 a better way of looking at things. I, I think that's more hopeful. <laughs> so. Well, it's it's why I think our democracy has prevailed for two hundred and forty years. Hmm. The problem is it has cancer right now. I mean, the the Supreme Court oh. in nineteen seventy eight in a decision written by Lewis Powell himself, you know, the author of the Powell Memo. Uh, ruled that corporations are persons and entitled to rights under the Bill of Rights. And one of those rights yeah. is the First Amendment right of free speech and that, and that money isn't really money, money is speech. And that, you know, lubricated uh, Ronald Reagan's, you know, ascent into office in 1980 and, and, and the, the Reagan revolution. The court doubled down on it in 2010 with Citizens United. And so now we've got this, this poison of big billionaire, right-wing billionaire money and money from outside the country. In fact, in 2010, in Citizens United, they actually legalized foreign money in our elections. And uh, so, you know, we've, we now have an election, an electoral system that has been badly corrupted by, by money. And it, and it really is a cancer in our democracy. And I point that out in the book, too. I mean, this this needs to be one of the very first things we do is excise that cancer. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, we're getting to the end of our time here. Um, and I thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you come back sometime. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate it. Oh, um, it's, it's been an honor and a pleasure for me, Rob. Thank you so much for inviting me. No, no problem. Before you go, though, the last question I always ask is, what music have you been listening to lately? Uh, oh, geez. Uh, George Winston, actually. Nice. I, I listen to George Winston when I write. That's, that's good. Good answer. <laughs> I, like that. I like that. Great, great. Well, um, everyone should... Yeah, go on. I, I said, I think he just recently passed away. It's kind of a Oh, loss. really? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, but brilliant pianist. Nice. 
Well, um, thank you again, and uh, please come back sometime. I really appreciate it. So. My pleasure. Great. Well, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, you too.